Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Uh, it's, uh, it's nice to uh, be with you again and, and spending time in the Word of the Lord. Um, right now, there is nobody else in this room, and yet I can picture the faces of so many of you, and um, I draw a lot of encouragement and comfort from realizing that even though we're in different places, um, the Lord still powerfully speaks through his word, and the Lord still unites our hearts together by his spirit, and he still encourages us and builds us up. And uh, so my prayer for us then this morning is that we would be filled with joy uh, as we hear from the word of the Lord and as we consider the power and the beauty of the gospel. Our text this morning is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We'll be in verses 1 through 10. Um, this is one of those stories that uh, convinces me that uh, the Bible is God's word and that it faithfully and truthfully records things as they happen. Because the, the amount of details in this story and the, the number of things that are maybe unexpected, and certainly the, the presence of, of situations that are even to our modern ears outrageous and outlandish. Uh, all these things converge in one story that, that just convinced me that there is only one person who could use this to convey the truth of who our Savior is. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited to get into this story with you this morning. It's about a man possessed by a demon. And as we'll see, the Lord uh, ministers powerfully in his life. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, I pray that this morning, as we hear your word, that you would fill us with joy, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us greater resolve uh, to be people who follow you with their whole lives, that you would give us a deeper awareness of the, the beauty of the gospel, the power of the cross, and your great love and compassion and mercy for us, all of whom are broken in various ways, all of whom are, apart from your intervention, directly opposed to your glory. Uh, but Lord, we rejoice that because of the cross, because of Jesus, uh, you have brought us into your kingdom, and you have made it so that we are your heralds in this world. Lord, would you, would you show us these things this morning? Would you speak through your word to us and encourage your saints today? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, we're in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. I'm going to read through it and comment along the way to give you a sense of some of the things, just so we're all on the same page. Um, so uh, bear with me. We'll, we'll start out in verse 1 here. They came, the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And they were, of course, with Jesus. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Let's, let's pause there and just consider the scene that Mark has painted for us. Uh, this is a scene that is both horrific, it is, it is horrible, 
and it is also pitiful. Uh, and, and it's interesting that both of these sensations would, would merge in one story, in one man's life. But it, it's horrific in the sense that here you have a man who has been possessed, troubled by this unclean spirit. And that in and of itself is not the norm when we read uh, the Gospels. It's certainly not something that we think about all that often nowadays. Uh, but when we read it here, when we see it in this man's life, um, it, it is shocking and it's a little bit, little bit terrifying. He lives among the tombs, which in those days wouldn't have just been a, a cemetery with people buried under the ground and covered over with dirt. Now, the tombs would have been a whole system of maybe even underground caves, uh, where bodies would have been left. And especially when you think about poorer people leaving their dead there in these desolate places, you can imagine how utterly uh, creepy and, and shocking and, and horrible it would appear for a person to live out there. But that's not where the story ends. In fact, the man is, he is so superhumanly strong that in order to restrain him, they put on chains, they put on shackles on his feet. And, and he constantly tears these things apart. He's constantly evading the, the, the treatment plans of the citizens of the nearby town. He's crying out. You could imagine a person like this just screaming, especially in the middle of the night. Um, and then, of course, we see evidence that he is even self-destructive as he cuts himself repeatedly with these stones. The, the scene is truly horrifying. But it, it's also pitiful. It elicits pity from us as we read this. As we, as we see this man's state, it is utterly inhumane, the living conditions uh, that he's experiencing here and that we witness here. You can, you can sense the agony that, that has overtaken this man's life. You can see the inward turmoil at work as he screams and cries out, uh, and, and even as he tries to destroy himself. Uh, we are drawn to pity this man, uh, even while we're scared of his circumstances and maybe even himself. We can't help but feel a certain degree of pity for for him. You ask yourselves questions, you know, how long has it been like this for him? Maybe even you realize that it surely hasn't always been this way. At some point, this man was probably a child with toys, and he would play around outside, and he had friends. But here he is in this utterly different state. What brought him to this point? How has he gotten here? Now, in Scripture, demonic oppression is, uh, it generally revolves around the destruction, the commitment to destroying the image of God wherever it may be found, and especially in human beings, who we know from back in Genesis exist as the very image of their creator. In this way, demonic oppression is really a proxy war in which people serve as the battleground between demonic forces and God Almighty. And so this man has found himself caught in, in the middle here. Now, don't get, don't get confused. I'm not at all implying that there's some sort of dualistic battle going on where God faces off against his equal, the, the, the devil and his minions. That's not what I'm saying. But rather, there is a, a sense in which the, this unclean spirit 
is using this man to, to spit in the face of God, even kind of literally here. That, that's what I mean when I say that, that this man is really a battleground for Satan's offensive against God. Now, before you roll your eyes at this idea of the demonic, maybe we should consider uh, that, that Satan has perhaps grown more efficient in this day and age uh, because the, the truth is that this affront to the, the character and nature of God, it's the spirit of probably every age, uh, but it's certainly present in our age today. Uh, you think of all the ways that our culture, especially here in the West, uh, tends to uh, uh, devalue human life, whether it's through abortion uh, or through the, the great wickedness of, of racism. Uh, these become excuses for people to dishonor the image of God, to spit in his face, to question and challenge his authority as we attack those made in his image. Um, even something like, like gender reassignment surgery, where, where we look to the Lord and question his judgment, his wisdom in creating us as we are. Uh, this is the spirit of our age. To, to assault God's image wherever we can find it, to question his authority wherever, wherever it is found. And if that happens on a macro level, if that happens in the big picture, if we can say these things about a culture, about a world, we can certainly say it on a micro level about human hearts. Surely this can happen there too, that the, the world, our own flesh even, and the devil himself are all conspiring in some way or other at some time or other all of these things are conspiring against God. And it's so prevalent in this story, especially here in these first five verses. So let's pick up in verse six, where he says this, and when he, the, the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Let's pause there and, and see what's developed. You know, the, the first five verses were a good description of the scene, the setting, uh, maybe the main character outside of Jesus. But here we get some action. And here's some things start to happen. And so the man approaches Jesus, and verse 6 lets us know that he fell down before Jesus. Now, usually that's a reference to, to worship, to paying homage, even if it's done insincerely. For example, at the end of this gospel, in chapter 15, verse 17, we see where the soldiers who are beating and abusing Jesus bow down in homage to him. It's the same phrase. Uh, but obviously, they're not sincere in their worship. 
And here again, while this demon-possessed man may be truly subservient to Jesus and maybe really is bowing down out of a sincere understanding of who Jesus really is, it's still not an, a, a submission from the heart. This is still, this is still not a, a, a willing, desiring obedience from the man or from these demons. And instead, we get a better sense that it's actually more of an attempted coup, an, attempted, an attempt to take the authority, to seize the authority that belongs only to Jesus. We see this because the, the man approaches Jesus and he uses Jesus' name and Jesus' title. He calls him Jesus, Son of the Most High God in verse 7. And when you couple this with the command where he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Uh, we, we get the picture that this demon thinks, or at least is hopeful, that maybe by using Jesus' name and us issuing commands like this, that he can gain the upper hand over him. It gives us a sense, however, of what's happening internally with the man himself. You notice it's hard to discern who is actually speaking at any given moment outside of Jesus. At one moment, the person speaking is known as he. In another, it's they, them. Where does the man end and these demons, who apparently are numerous, begin? There's an identification between these two. And so what at first is an attempt to overpower Jesus on the part of, of the, these demons residing in this man ends up actually becoming submission to the power of Jesus, as we see, where Jesus flips the table. It turns the table on the, the question that they ask. They refer to him by name. They command him not to send them out of the country. And Jesus then flips the script and he says, no, okay, wait a second. What's your name? And they answer. Because Jesus truly does have the authority to command and and order even these demonic spirits about. And so they answer, they say, our name is, is Legion because we are many. But not only do they answer Jesus' question as though they owe him an answer, but they, they also then proceed to beg Jesus. They beg him not to send them away. They even beg him to send them into these pigs. And, and I love that turn of phrase in verse 13, he gave them permission. Jesus is not their equal. Uh, he, he's not their peer. And, and when Jesus intercedes uh, on behalf of this man, there's no question, there is no doubting who has the authority in this place. The bottom line is that this man is a slave unless the Lord intervenes. And we get the impression, especially as these pigs are cast to their death, that unless the Lord had intervened, this man would eventually have died just like this. Now, this next part of the story is, is pretty interesting. Not that this hasn't been interesting so far. Um, it helps us, though, to evaluate everything that we're seeing here. And so let's pick up in, in verse 14, the herdsmen. Because, of course, with pigs being present, there would be herdsmen. They fled and they told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man 
the one who had had the legion, in case you forgot, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The demon-possessed man has undergone an incredible transformation here. Uh, he is seated, he is clothed, and in his right mind, verse 15 tells us, and, and if you had forgotten, don't you love that little detail? This is the only demon-possessed man in the story, but Mark feels it's necessary to remind us that this is the one who had the whole legion of demons residing in him. This is an incredible transformation. Uh, and you can imagine how the people, the herdsmen, but especially the townspeople who have been so terrified of this man would feel as they approached him now in this utterly different state of being. But we don't just see the reaction, the response of this man. We, we see the, the reaction of rubbernecking herdsmen and townspeople. And it can best be summarized with one word, which is fear. They're afraid. It's an interesting reaction. It's not altogether surprising, I suppose. Uh, Jesus has displayed a pretty incredible unearthly power something that they had obviously tried to do themselves by at least chaining this man, restraining him in some way, sending him away to the tombs, whatever it took to get some sort of normalcy back. But Jesus does it without even flinching. Uh, and, and these people are, are fearful of him. That's a common right. We see the disciples fearful of Jesus time and time again because of his power. We also get the sense, especially with their repeated references to the pigs, that they were probably maybe just as upset about the economy and how things were about to really tank uh, because their whole livelihood had just gone off the edge. Uh, their concern is not necessarily about this man. They're afraid of Jesus. They're probably very concerned about the upended economy they're facing. There's a striking lack of compassion here, a real apathy about the status of this man. And, and even this fear of Jesus seems to be a bit inordinate. They're not just afraid of him in a reverential sort of way. They, they, they beg him to leave. Not even the demon did that. The demon just asked where he could go, that Jesus would allow him to leave Jesus' presence. But, but here these people take it a step further. They want Jesus to leave them. And so they, they beg him to go away because they are so terrified of who he is and what more he might do. You contrast this with the eagerness of the man once possessed by demons, his willingness, his zeal to follow the Lord out of that region, anywhere else, let's go. I'll follow you wherever. Well, as we think about this, I, I see three main truths, I suppose, that I, I want to draw out for us here. Point number one, Jesus came to rescue us from the tyranny of the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
Jesus came to rescue us from the tyranny of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Look at these different characters and the ways that they act here. The people attempt to subdue this man. They cast him off. They avoid him. And yet Jesus intercedes on his behalf with compassion. The the man himself is utterly helpless to do anything about his state. Uh, even, Even out in the tombs by himself, we see him attempting to destroy his own life, perhaps out of a desire to just end his suffering then and there. He's helpless, though, to, to, to remove these demons from his presence. But Jesus has all authority. There's never a question. Even in comparison to these demons and whatever power they might hold over the man, the, Jesus has infinite power over them. And while we think about this, and we think about this man's helpless state, I think it's important for us to remember as well that we likewise, just as this man was, are not only helpless against Uh, forces beyond our control, but but we are helpless against our own flesh. Uh, We're we're helpless against our own sin nature. Uh, You're, I'm sure, deeply aware of all the ways that your your inclination is opposed to God himself. Even if you're a believer, you, you feel that tug on your soul as you're faced with temptation and trial, the temptation to turn your back on the Lord, to turn away from him and pursue joy, pursue comfort, pursue hope in other places or things or people. And yet we are helpless, which sounds silly when you think of some of the things that we give ourselves over to or, or some of the things that we have given ourselves over to uh, before trusting ourselves to the Lord. But that's the state of the human soul is that we are broken beyond repair. We are helpless, even confronting our own sinful, wicked desires. Sometimes all we can do is cry out to the Lord. Now, it's not just the man's reaction we want to look at. Even, let's look at the reaction of of legion here. These demons are bent on destruction and dominion, but Jesus secures this man's freedom by yielding himself to serve his broken creation, this man. All of this, all of these elements of how Jesus' reaction is better than the, the world or better than anything this man could do, better than the, 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 the power and, and authority that these demons have over this man. All of these characteristics of Jesus are, are on full display at the cross. I hope you see that. As I'm reading this, I just can't help but realize how much the cross makes this story powerful and true. This isn't just Jesus giving the man a nice gesture. Jesus is showing, he is unleashing the very power that that is won at the cross. If, if If you will just follow me here on this logic. Jesus rescued this man from the world's apathy towards him and even angst towards him by subjecting himself to the apathy of the world. And not just of this region. I mean, the apathy and, 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 and hatred of the entire world, every person who's ever existed, every, every person who has ever stood opposed to God, Jesus subjected himself uh, to their judgment, to their wisdom. 
We see in Isaiah 53, verse 3, a prophecy about exactly who this servant of the Lord would be like. And of course, Jesus fulfills it perfectly. It says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus subjected himself to the world's turning its back on him. Likewise, Jesus endured the humiliation, the helplessness of crucifixion. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, uh, the author tells us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knows better even than this man what, what the humiliation of being utterly helpless looks like. Jesus lived it to the fullest extent. He cried out to his father, why have you forsaken me? There is no more helpless feeling than that. But Jesus also yielded himself to the will of God, whereas this legion of demons attempts to take control over this man and even trying to seize authority from Jesus. Jesus, rather than grasping for authority and the power that is rightly his at the cross, he lays his preferences down. He lays his very life down and yields to the will of his Father. Philippians 2 Six through eight says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here in this tale of this one man oppressed as he is by the world, the flesh, his own, his own sinful flesh, and the devil, we see how Jesus answers each of these oppositions in himself at the cross, rescuing a people from the tyranny of all else. Point number two is that not only did Jesus come to rescue us from this tyranny, but Jesus also came to restore us. And we've noted, and perhaps the center of this entire story, is the incredible transformation that this man undergoes. He went from raging with anger, naked in chains, to calm, clothed, and free. And there's a very deliberate parallelism here. Mark wants us to see that this has been an utter radical transformation from who he was to who Jesus has made him to be. It reminds me uh, a little bit of that Disney cartoon, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, If you've been stuck at home watching nothing but streaming movies all the time, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Parents, shout out to you. But if you've been watching Beauty and the Beast lately, uh, you remember the very end where the prince, he, he turns back into a human person. And it's incredible. It's mesmerizing, right? It's it's, it's utterly unlike, I remember watching that thinking, I didn't expect him to look that way. I don't know what I expected he would look like, but it, it's an utter radical transformation. And here this man has undergone a more radical transformation 
even than that. I love verse 19 where Jesus tells him to go back home to his friends. It's just such a reminder of who this man was at some point in time. But even now, having come back from this, this, this shroud of, of oppression by these demons, he's still not the same person that he once was because here he's being commissioned, he's being sent back to his friends, a different person. Um, having, been, having encountered Jesus himself, uh, there, there's something that has changed about him. And, and I think that's a reminder for us, especially who follow Jesus, that Jesus transforms all of his people. Uh, maybe not in the same ways that he transforms this man, but he, he does transform us into his very image, which I think is maybe even more incredible and miraculous. If you look at Romans 8.29, Brad preached on this last week, it says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus, then, is the prototype for the new man. And here, this, this man gets an earthly taste of just what that looks like. And what, is it, what does it mean to be transformed into his image? How does that happen? Well, it, it does happen right at the cross. When Jesus dies, he says, it is finished. That meaning that, that all the work he set out to do then and there ha- has been done. There's nothing more that needs to take place for his powerful work to be effective, to save sinners and to transform them into his image, to, re- to renew them after the new Adam. Instead of the old one who led us into sin and decay. But it doesn't just happen at the cross. It also happens, and I think we all sort of know this just by our own experience. It happens progressively over our lives. As we behold him more, and as we yield ourselves to Jesus uh, more deeply. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. If you've been given the Spirit of God, this transformation is underway in your life. Maybe sometimes it doesn't quite feel that way. Maybe you wonder why it is that you continue to wrestle with the things that you do, and yet you can rest assured if you are following Christ that he is making you new. And he's, he's molding you, he's shaping you into his image. What does this look like? Uh, it reminds me, it makes me think of, of, of visiting a, a battlefield. Have you ever visited a battlefield, like one of those Revolutionary War battlefields or a Civil War battlefield? Maybe you've been somewhere in Europe and you've seen uh, places of World War I, World War II. In one sense, as soon as the war is over, a a battlefield becomes sort of like a sanctuary, right? President Lincoln refers to Gettysburg as hallowed ground, I think. Uh, And that, that takes place as soon as the fighting is done. But there's another sense in which the accumulation of years changes a place. So that by the time you visit it, which may be years, decades, centuries later, It's long been covered in grass and trees. Maybe you see deer running around on the field. Not long ago, uh, I had the opportunity to to see uh, a battlefield uh, out in in South Carolina. 
the Battle of the Calpins. And uh, actually, it was long ago. It was a lot longer ago than I'm letting on. I don't even think I could drive them. But anyway, I remember going expecting to see something that resembled really strongly a battlefield. You know, like I would see stuff. And, and you see monuments that are put up well after the battle is done. You see, you see the open expanse where you can kind of imagine a war being fought. But at the end of it all, you're, you're left thinking, this is not exactly what I expected. This is much more beautiful than I thought it would be. This feels more like a park. But that's the effect that, that time has in transforming a battlefield into something beautiful. By remaining in its own setting, a battlefield actually, after a while, becomes really a reminder of what was, but even more than that, a reminder of everything that's happened since and just the passing of time and the power of, of time to renew things. And that's just the power of time. You can imagine then what, what incredible monuments any person redeemed by Jesus is as we walk around in the setting in which we live, that we would display the renewing and the, the might of Jesus to, to not just rescue us, uh, but, but to make us new to restore us to what we were and, and then some. And that, that brings me to my third point, which is that Jesus came to redirect rather than remove us. And I think that's probably the most fascinating, unexpected element of this whole story. And why I say that this story absolutely has to be true, because there, this is not how I would have written it. Uh, the, the man goes through this incredible change. He's been rescued. He's been, he's been transformed and made new. And he comes to Jesus eager, excited to leave with him. But Jesus says no and tells him to stay. It's interesting uh, how the word begging gets used in this, in this story. In verse 10, we see that this man begs Jesus not to send the demons out of the country. This is foremost in his mind. Don't send these demons out of the country. Maybe it is the man himself speaking, and maybe he's so dependent on them, even as he hates them, that, that he can't help but, but beg Jesus to keep them at least nearby. Verse 12, the demons beg Jesus to send them into the pigs. Verse 17, the people then beg Jesus to depart their region. And we've, we've commented on how, just how crazy it is that even the demons didn't ask for that. But the people, that's what they request, is that Jesus would leave. They beg him for this. But here in verse 18, at the end of it all, the man once again is begging. But he's, he's not begging for Jesus to send these demons somewhere else. He's instead begging that Jesus would take this man with him. It's an incredible reminder of just how different this man has become but, but it's a reminder as well that this man's transformation is not just outward. And it's not just in terms of his own inward character. That he's now back in his right mind. He, he now has those same friends that he once had before and is able to enjoy life with them again. No, this transformation is also inward in terms of his mission. In terms of the aim of his life, of his existence. He goes from begging not to be sent out to begging to become a disciple 
following Jesus away, even as the town begs Jesus to go away. And I, th- I think it's a reminder, and this is, uh, this is just an aside, this one's free, that you really can't claim to follow Jesus if it doesn't mean setting everything else aside. But Jesus denies his request. Why is that? I mean, just think about it. Think about this man. Think about how he feels right here in this moment. Consider for a moment just how awkward this scenario now is. He, he returns to the town, let's say. I mean, this is what, what's going through his mind? Jesus, take me with you. Jesus says, no, I think you should stay. Uh, the man turns around. He says, hey, well, hey, hey guys. Uh, so maybe you don't remember me. Uh, but um, I've been gone for a little while, and I'm glad to be back now. So let's just kind of move. How do you pick up from that? Where do you go from there? Uh, It's an incredibly awkward, uncomfortable situation, the circumstance this man is in. People used to dread him, used to chain him up and leave him for dead among the dead. And here, Jesus mercifully, gently, kindly, confidently leaves the man behind and tells him to proclaim what the Lord has done. It's strange that this is what would happen. So often we see disciples offer to follow Jesus wherever he goes, and he says, come on, you know, count the cost, but get in the bus, let's go. With this man, it's, it's the exact opposite. The man wants to go desperately. But Jesus tells him to stay in order that he might proclaim what the Lord has done. You know, much could be said here, I think, about identity. In verse 9, if you remember, Jesus asked the man, what is your name? He really asked this of the, the demons possessing this man. What is your name? And another way you could translate that is to say, what is your nature? Who are you? What's your identity? At the very core of who you are, what is is it that makes you you? What's your essence? And at first, the man identifies with Legion. He, He uses the name of the band of demons that indwell him. But in the end, he declares Jesus to be his Lord. Jesus says in verses 19 to 20, he says, go tell them what the Lord has done for you. And I love how the man then goes and does that. But he doesn't say, let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Instead, the man tells them what Jesus has done for him. The man absolutely, perfectly understands who Jesus is. Jesus is God Almighty. Jesus is my Lord. That's who this man is. That's That's what he has done for me, and that's now who I am. I am his servant. I I am in his hands to accomplish his purposes, to tell people what he wants them to know from me. I'm going to tell people what he has done for me. And we, we we never actually learn this man's name, which is itself... Not, not all that uncommon, but with so many names floating around in here, even the band of demons has a capital L legion name. But, but this man doesn't get a name, and I think that's because the only name that really matters in this case is the name of Christ. Who is the Messiah? 
What has he done? That's your identity now. He is the one who controls your destiny. Follow him by staying here. Even as he goes to do other things, you stay here as his emissary. If you remember, Jesus has been begged to leave. And Jesus, perhaps as a form of judgment, has left them. Or he's getting in the boat to leave. But Jesus still, he leaves them with one reminder. Perhaps the most powerful reminder he could have left behind. This trophy of his grace. This statue in the middle of the battlefield. He leaves behind this man to proclaim who he is. Before, this man was a mouthpiece of demons. But now, he is the herald of Christ's power and compassion. So in the name of Jesus... Like this man, we can boldly stay where he has left us, likewise, and and tell others what he has done. Do you remember when when you were converted, when you became a believer, when you turned to the Lord and you turned from your sin and you said, own my life, direct my steps. I, I, I want to find my joy in no one else but knowing you. Do you remember that? And, and do you remember that time maybe or a series of, maybe it transpired over years where you slowly became, you became aware of the fact that your life didn't immediately go the direction you thought it was going to go after you started following the Lord. Or maybe you were following the Lord and with a lot of great success, if you want to call it that, uh, and then you ran into some things along the way that made you question what in the world you had gotten yourself into. What, what even is this? Where am I? Why won't Jesus rescue me from this situation and put me in a better place? I, I love this story because I think it's such a testament to the, to the grace, actually, of the Lord not to take us from where we've been, not to remove us from the setting where his power was so powerfully worked in our lives, but actually to leave us there as a reminder of his might and his love and his compassion. And I think that's really reassuring because I know that Jesus isn't just leaving me on my own, but that Jesus and the the testimony of what he's done and the surety that, that he is my Lord. He will not abandon me. He will not forsake me, but will instead gather me together with him before this is all said and done. That's, that's incredibly encouraging. And it gives me strength to obey him now, to tell others about who he is now, to herald him here where I am. Lately, I've been reading this book. It's by Cormac McCarthy. It's called The Road. And uh, as my wife pointed out to me when she saw that I was reading it, it's probably not the best thing for me to be reading right now while the world seemingly is at an end about post-apocalyptic America and the journey of a father and son through this ashen wasteland. But I'm a sucker for that sort of thing, and I'm really enjoying it. And I love the interactions between these two characters, the father and the son. They never get any names in the story, at least as far as I know. I haven't finished it yet. Uh, But the son is notorious for being afraid of everything. He's constantly in dread. And anytime his father walks away to go get firewood, to go scrounge up some food, the son asks him, please don't go. Please stay here. Please don't leave me. I'm afraid. But what becomes the antidote to the son's fear is the saying that the father and the son have, this this understanding that they, and this is just a a phrase from the book, that, that we're carrying the fire. 
it becomes a, a defining statement about who they are in a world full of all kinds of horrible, wicked people. Uh, we carry the fire. And, and, and I, I think that's such a great parallel to what we see here. That Jesus can leave this man where he is because he carries the, the power and the beauty and the warmth of the gospel wherever he goes uh, in word, but by virtue of his existence, he reminds people. So let me conclude. If, if you are in Christ, you have been rescued, you have been restored, and you have been redirected for his purposes because Jesus laid down his life for you. You are a trophy of his grace on display for the whole world to see. And if you have not yielded yourself to Christ's authority, I can't encourage you more to acknowledge your nature. Acknowledge your helpless state before your sin, before the world, your own self, and the devil. Repent of your sin. And watch Jesus rescue you from the tombs. Let's pray. Father, what, what a gracious gift it is that you laid down your life for, for such unbelievably unworthy people. The, the very bottom of the bucket. But you do this knowing that this is the only way and desiring that this be so that we might be transformed. That we might be repurposed. That we might be refurbished, made better than before for your purposes, for your name's sake. But I pray for people watching this right now. I ask that you would intervene in their hearts, that you would convict them of sin, convict them of the tombs in which they might be living even now. Show them the reality, the hopelessness even, of their state before you, apart from Christ. And then show them the, the wonder of Jesus as he approaches all those who receive him. He comes forward with no questions asked, no hesitation, and he changes us. Or would you transform us? Would you use us for your glory in this world? Would we be statues, trophies of your grace in the wasteland that this life so often appears to be? We ask that now in the name of Jesus, in the mighty name of your Son. Amen.